Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have the pleasure to talk with David Gardner, co-founder of The Motley Fool. The Motley Fool is one of the most well-known brands among self-directed retail investors, and we talk with David about a whole host of issues, including what it really means to be an investor, The Fool's rule breaker investment strategy, and how to find great growth stocks, the importance of being transparent and honest with investors, and much more. This was a fun and insightful interview, and partly because of David, The Motley Fool has helped educate tens if not hundreds of thousands of investors over the past 25 plus years. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with David Gardner, co-founder of The Motley Fool. David, thank you very much for joining us today. What a delight. Thank you, gentlemen. Jack and I are very excited to talk to you about The Motley Fool, your investment philosophy, the rule breaker portfolio, and the process that you followed for a long time in terms of finding winning stocks. And I think we'll also get into some of the things that investors may not know about The Fool, like your early stage venture investing fund um, and a couple other areas that I think are going to be really interesting to sort of pick your brain at. We were, it was kind of funny though, we were joking um, before we started here around one of the strategies on Validia, one of the quantitative models we run, which is based on the book, The Motley Fool Investment Guide, which we're not going to talk about that today specifically, but we were joking around how that is of the original models that we launched in 03 that is one of the best performing, it is the best performing strategy actually out of the initial model lineup and how it's so different than what you do now, but how the concepts in there, I think, um, have worked very well over time. So that was just something we were kidding around about. Well, that's really exciting. Thank you, Justin. I'm delighted to know that. I think it's really cool that uh, part of what we talked, you guys and I talked a little bit ahead of time and before I came on, and you just mentioned you've been doing this work since 2003. Now, all of your regular listeners and fans know that about Validia, but I just think that's worth noting and underlining that the work's been going on for a couple of decades. I think that's wonderful that you guys have pursued that and unlocked some good insights uh, for for. For investors, which is you know what we're all trying to do, I guess, and we're all trying to do better for ourselves and better for others. And um, I'm delighted to know that some of our foolish principles, which by the way, we they're pretty timeless. I mean, we follow those. Like we're focused, as you guys know, on the businesses, less so the stock. That's a that's a little bit of a distinction. Uh, the Motley Fool maybe versus Wall Street, uh, and there are other ones like that. Anyway, I'm glad to know that it's kind of working. Thank thank you thank you for that. One of the things that. Um we found out in researching um, more about you is that your maybe your first and only job before The Fool was working for Louis Rukeyser um, and Wall Street Week. And I, I mean, I find that very interesting. I mean, Wall Street Week used to be, you know, one of the main investing uh, weekly shows and investors would tune into that to listen to um, what people, what these great investors were talking about that he would have on. But I want to ask you specifically, um, what sort of how, what, how was that experience and and how, how was it did that lead you um, into sort of your interest in the newsletter and investing in the fool how did that whole thing materialize over time thank you very much it's fun to think back to those times I mean the year was 1992 so that's 
30 years ago, I think, if my math's right, from where we are today. So, yeah, guys, it was my it was my first and only job because I, I don't think of the fool as a job. I've always thought of it as a calling, and it's just been a delight. Um, but that was a job, and if job is defined as something that you're doing for pay, that you may or may not be highly motivated to, to show up uh, for every given Monday morning. And that's kind of how it felt for me. I will just mention briefly, so Louis Rukeyser, the longtime host of PBS's longest-running show, Wall Street Week, which you just referenced, Justin. Uh, lots of people would watch Friday evenings. Often it was like people's dads. It was like it was sort of an old boys club a little bit. That's how the world was back then for investing, and that was kind of what the show looked like. But it was it was a wonderful opportunity for a journalist, which is what Rukeyser was, to opine about the markets. He had great wit, and as you mentioned, Justin, he had a regular group of. Uh, Wall Street friends. Peter Lynch was one of them. He was a popular figure on the show, someone I enjoyed. Anyway, I was writing for the Companion Newsletter. So I was writing for Louis Rukeyser's Wall Street, which was sent out to Louis's fans, a lot of them PBS viewers over decades. And uh, so we were doing the the newsletter, and I got to write the back page of that newsletter. And I, at a young age, I had a lot of license to kind of select what topic I wanted to feature, which was kind of great. And so I would pick something that seemed neat to me, like discount brokers. These days, I think we all assume any broker would be a discount broker. Back then, that was a rarefied new group of disruptive companies like Charles Schwab and Company. What's a discount broker? So I wrote the back page about the benefits of discount brokers, and the article would come back edited with half of what I'd written was still there, but any color, fun, humor, stripped out, gone. The second half, all the reasons that you would not want to do whatever I was advocating in the first half of the article. And so it was this frustrating process where I was told that's how journalism works. You have to paint both sides. And they were saying, David, what you're doing is, as a fan and an enthusiast, you're picking something like discount brokers or Another one was on Quicken Software, where you can actually track your expenses in your investing and returns. And I thought that was so exciting. But then they'd say, but you have to show the other side. And I just didn't want to do that. And it was kind of frustrating work. So after six months, I quit the job, which means at that point, my only job, I was around 25. I hadn't even held for a year. So the joke runs, uh, I had to found a company in order to <laughs> actually find some employment. My brother Tom and I started The Fool shortly thereafter. So I really did benefit, I want to make it clear, from that work time. I, I was a Rukeyser fan. Uh, I, I, I really appreciated that, um, you know, what it took to put together a financial newsletter. And then when The Fool started about a year later, um, I, I, by the way, didn't quit the job thinking we would start a newsletter. It was Tom's friend, Eric Rideholm, who'd gone to Brown University with Tom and said, you know, I just graduated Ivy League school and I have no idea what the stock market is or how it works. Could I come over a couple nights and just hear how the stock market works? And I taught Eric the stock market back then over a couple nights. And he said, why don't we start a newsletter? And that was The Motley Fool. You know, there's been a lot of successful people that have come out of Motley Fool. I mean, Morgan Housel is one of those people that I think of in terms of being a great writer. Actually, interestingly enough, his article today was about how he, um, how he got into writing and his path and the sort of some of the lucky things that happened before he actually ended up at The Fool. He was in private equity, he got fired, then he had this connection that he had come to um, kind of befriend and they hooked back up and then he joined The Fool, I think it was in 07 and 08, and that's where he refined his writing um, skill set um, to a large extent. But I wanted to ask you, what is the process for someone to join The Motley Fool 
as a writer. I think Morgan's path maybe maybe was unique to him at the time. Um, and you know, what do you think happens at the Fool that can help make someone like Morgan and some of the other people that have come out of the firm go on to be great writers and do great things? Well, thank you for that, Justin. You know, I think first of all, uh, I mean, Morgan is a special talent. So I, I, we, I wish we all could be. I'm sure we all wish we could be Morgan Housel, but only Morgan could be Morgan Housel. But one thing we've done a good job at is finding people who have a different mentality, who think different. You know, that Apple famous uh, branding campaign, Think Different. I really do think we've always been that and embraced that. I mean, after all, we've called ourselves the Motley Fool from day one, which doesn't sound great, you know, to a lot of the money world. It sounds like a very surprising name to take. Um, so I think that we've always thought differently and attracted people who think differently. But I also believe that we have played the long game. And so I think that, and, and we love the business part of investing, like business-focused investing is something that has always been true of the fool. So we're not that interested in technical analysis, zigs and zags on graphs. Uh, um, some of the quant stuff definitely interests us, and we have some internal quant going on, nothing probably like Val Validia and all that you guys have been doing for so long. But, I mean, we have some of that. But really what we are is I think we're kind of dreamers, poets, thinkers. We're sort of the right side of the brain uh, for the financial world in a lot of ways. So um, so the good news is there are a lot of people out there who don't fully rely on algorithms or the left side of their brain, and I think that they can add value. I've tried to do that with my own investment approach, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. But I, So I think that we attract those types. But to answer the first part of your question then, Justin, anybody can write for The Motley Fool. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of contractors. Morgan was one of them. We've had many other talents through the years. Some of them go on to become full-time fools, which I think Morgan was for a little while. And others just love the contracting life, the gig economy that has been possible for all of us. So anybody who wants to write for The Fool can just apply to The Fool as a contract writer. And we work with you. We try to level you up and you know make you perform well for us. It's a win-win when we do it right. So we actually have more contract writers than we have employees at The Fool. And I think we have about 620 employees at The Fool today. So you can see that we have hundreds and hundreds of writers. And I, I take a lot of pride in the team that we have that manages those writers because they really are trying to make you a better writer. They are editors. They're thinkers. They have good questions about the business that you're writing about. So, so much of the production at Fool.com every day, especially our free articles that go out about, you know, why did PayPal lose a quarter of its value um, on Tuesday, February 2nd, you know, those kinds of questions that investors have, we always have articles answering those questions, but they're written by people like Morgan who are doing what Morgan was. So I do think we've had a lot of special people come through over time. Jim Surowiecki back in the day who wrote The Wisdom of the Crowds was a six-year employee at The Motley Fool. It's not a story that I guess we tell that often, but I'm more than happy for somebody who's smart like you to go back, do the research, and notice that that's been happening. I really appreciate the question. I'm flattered. We're going to dig deep into your rule breaker strategy, but first I want to ask you about a phrase that I think epitomizes what you do at The Motley Fool, but also a phrase you don't particularly like. And and because I, I think that sort of, it does a good job of explaining what you guys do. Love it. So th that phrase, and, and I, I remember when you were on with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, you mentioned that if, uh, if, if you use this phrase, he could give you a dead arm. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that phrase is long-term investing. So can you, can you explain to me your relationship with the term long-term investing? Yeah, and thank you. Again, you guys have clearly done your research and you found some of my pet peeves, and I really love talking about my pet peeves. I've dedicated whole podcasts to my pet peeves, which is like the most self-indulgent podcast I do each year. But to answer the question, Jack, 
I don't like the phrase long-term investor or long-term investing. And I've always said that if you ever hear me say it outside of the context where I just did, if you hear me say it in person, you're allowed to walk up and give me a dead arm, and that is the dead arm rule. Now, why would somebody who loves investing and plays the game for the long term, why would I be inveighing against the, the phrase long-term investor? And the reason is because it's a tautology. I, I, I see it as a needless restatement because the word investor stands on its own, and it is by definition and by its very nature, I believe, long-term. In fact, if you're not an investor, then you're probably a trader, which I would describe as short-term. So I see traders and investors as two different sides of the same coin. They're all trying to make money, but some are doing it by definition for the short-term, and others are doing it by definition for the long-term. And so I want investor with a capital I to stand out and be a beautiful word that we all can appreciate on its own without having to say, yeah, what do you think of long-term investing? Because no one ever says short-term investing, right? That's a... That's a giveaway when you rarely ever hear that phrase because we would just use trading instead of saying short-term investing. And to close the shaggy dog ranting answer, Jack, I want to remind us all of where the word investor comes from. It comes from the Latin root investiri, which was a verb and meant something along the lines of to wear the clothes, of, to put on the clothes. And so my mental picture that I've tried to put out there to the world for some years now is sports. You know, you see NFL Sundays in America or football worldwide. You see people put on the jersey when they walk in the stadium and they're wearing the jersey. And whether their team wins or loses that day, they're going to keep wearing the jersey. And if their team has a bad month or a slump or a bad season or even sometimes five bad seasons in a row, they're going to keep on the jersey because they're fans. They stay in it to win it. And that's exactly how I believe we should be with our stocks. And I think so much of the world is not that way. But I've tried to coach and counsel people that you put on the jersey. You should be proud of the stocks you're buying. You should want to wear that jersey. And you should keep that jersey on if you're an investor, capital I, instead of doing what so much of the rest of the institutional world does, which is who cares what the jersey is? Who cares what the ticker is? Flip it. We're looking for a a pattern on a graph here. Uh, It's just so different from the beautiful phrase, word, concept, investing. I have to apologize in advance because I'm going to use some other terms you don't like during this. And I know you're not a big fan of the, of the, the value more versus fun. growth. I know you're not a fan of the value versus growth distinction, but uh, you know those of us that are quants tend to, to put stocks in those buckets based on you know, the ratios we use. And so some of my questions will probably use that as well. But, but before we talk about rule breakers, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that's easy for us for quant as quants is we can sort of take a large group of stocks and we can figure out like here are the ones we want to look into further using computerized techniques and i and i think that's one of the hardest things maybe for a lot of growth investors is is this idea that you know or or a lot especially specifically a lot of discretionary investors which is how do i take all these three thousand stocks that are out there and how do i figure out the ones i want to apply this rule breakers criteria against so i'm wondering if you could just talk about how do you start the process by narrowing down a universe to analyze using your criteria well, first of all, thank you. I think you're very gracious saying that you're going to use words I don't like. And uh, I mean, value and growth, we can talk about later. But you're right. I don't use those phrases. But I do want to say that I celebrate quant activity. Because uh, what you're doing is, I th- the word that comes to me here is taxonomy. You are basically categorizing things. You're tossing tickers into buckets, and you're saying this or that about them. And you're actually having to be specific. Like, it has to be 
rows on a spreadsheet, not just a bland label used on CNBC. What I really don't like is when people say stuff like value or growth, and they don't even know what they mean when they say it. They don't have specificity, and they're not accountable to the use of that term. And even if you, somebody says, I'm a value investor, I'm like, okay, so what is that? I get different answers from different value investors in terms of what it means, which is why I think it's an inept term, and it doesn't actually help the dialogue. But I want to go back to what you're doing, because what you guys are doing, you're not allowed to sloppily just say something. You actually have to place stocks into categories and into spreadsheets and then calculate what's happening. So I'm a fan of that. I'm a big fan of taxonomy and thinking through things, and so um, I can totally connect with you on the work that you're doing. How do I figure out what stocks I might want when I don't screen? Because I don't screen. Uh, I think that the answer goes longer than we would have for this one answer in a podcast, but to give it short shrift, I think that for the most part, I'm a bottoms-up rather than top-down investor. So I tend to be somebody who's just walking along the path of life, and I see a stone that looks like it's an interesting color or shape, I pick it up, and I look at that stone, and I, I see what was under it, and I, I, I discover something, and, and I might end up buying that stone, that stock. I might say, you know, that, that looks really interesting, like the, that might be part of the future. So it's much more a process of discovery as opposed to screening, which is also discovery. It's just using a pre-organized set of attributes or methodologies to decide what's going to appear in that screen. And for me... I'm not so um, compartmentalized in terms of how I think. Again, maybe this goes back to an Apple-like mentality to think different, but it it served me well. So in the end, Jack and Justin, I think what I've done is I've tried to um, imagine the future, invest backwards from the future, and then ask myself, what are the companies, products, and services that are most likely to be world shapers? And I'm happy to say part of the reason that I have outperformed, and we have outperformed the market a lot, is because we do pretty well doing that. Um, and you can't necessarily screen for the future. I think that's right. You know, one of the one of the things I really like about your strategy is you're sort of tackling a problem that those of us that are quants have a really hard time with, which is, you know, we, we do a lot better with value stocks and you know things like momentum, but growth, rapidly growing companies, is one of the hardest things for us to deal with. And you know, one of the things you see in the quant data is if you just randomly buy like a group of stocks that are growing very rapidly, that group doesn't do very well, but the best performing stocks in the entire market are within that group. So it really becomes like a diamonds in the rough, you know, finding a diamonds in the rough type process, which is why I really like, you know, what you guys are doing with the rule breaker strategy. And so I, I want to sort of step into it and, and maybe go through each, each criteria of the six major criteria. And maybe if you could just talk about why that criteria is important and maybe also for each one maybe just give an example of a stock you remember from your history that you know you think most closely meets that criteria you bet um and the first one is top dog and first mover in an emerging industry yeah in an important emerging industry and that's right jack uh, that is the first of the six attributes of rule breaker stocks that i'm looking for and i think i made it number one because i think it's the one that matters the most so when you actually imagine if you um, if you only invest, if you confined all of your investing activity only to this bucket, or I'm going to say fish only in this pond, uh, top dogs and first movers in important emerging industries. And if you were willing to spend a whole day and not catch a fish, or if you were willing to have your fishing rod blow up in your face because that was a really bad stock pick, but you're okay with that, if you just fish in that pond, I'm confident that you will beat the market if you follow the approach 
uh, the other attributes we're talking about. So I'm not going to isolate any one of these on its own. It's actually the full fabric taken together that makes the most sense to me. But this attribute that you've just spoken about is probably my favorite because it ends up giving you Amazon. It ends up giving you Netflix. It ends up giving you Facebook. It ends up giving you Tesla. The list goes on most of what we now recognize as the world shapers. We're top dogs and first movers in important emerging industries when they came out on the stock market. And we and I recommended the stocks. And we've, we've held them ever since. Like, I still have my Netflix from 2004, my Amazon from 97, and my Tesla from 2011. And that's, that's a whole separate thing that has nothing to do with the stocks themselves, but rather your own behavior. But we're ignoring that. We're going to keep going down this list looking at the stocks themselves. When you think about an important emerging industry, is that something really you just know it when you see it? I mean, you know, we always, as quants, you know, try to get into, well, you're looking at this growth rate or something like that. But is that really something you just have to kind of know it when you see it? Um, I think that all of us see different parts of the elephant of the future, to mix metaphors here. So we're all going to see different parts of the elephant. I think being fascinated and interested and trying to see as much of the elephant as you possibly can. A lot of people are niche investors or they're sector fund driven and they're just looking at one attribute and they can be total specialists. And the world is sometimes set up to make the specialists get the best grades and, and all the great stuff. But I, I'm also a big fan of Range, which is a book by David Epstein. And I'm, I'm a fan of generalists and generalism and I'm a, I'm a liberal arts major. Uh, that's my only degree, undergrad. So I, I love that approach as well. It doesn't sound as impressive sometimes as people with lots of letters after their names and who are mathematical and engineering-oriented, but I truly am more the right-brain type. And I do think that if you start to purpose seeing as much of the elephant of the future as you possibly can, you are setting yourself up to get pattern recognition over time, Jack, and be able to say, ah, this is a stock I'm going to buy. I, I might be wrong about the future, and that's the VC mentality, the venture capital mentality you have to have. But if you have that, you're going to actually find them, more so than people who aren't looking that way, and you'll get better and better at finding them over time. It does seem like you, you referenced VC. You know, it, do, it does seem like growth stocks are very much like a, you know, a, a much smaller version of VC in that you know, VCs obviously have a lot of companies that just fail altogether, and you're not seeing that in growth investing. But you do. it does seem like, the best performers drive a huge portion of your return. I mean, do you, do you think that's an accurate way to look at it? That is always how it will be, I think. And you guys are quants. I'm not. But I, I'm pretty sure you're going to discover that um, play forward any group of stocks over time, it's going to be a tiny number of them. Out of any 20 stocks, it might be one, two, or three stocks that will end up with the lion's share of the great returns. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we don't want to have 20 great stocks out of 20. But if we're talking about truly great, like blow away, like 100x plus, there just aren't that many companies that do that anyway, right? If there were, then there'd be a lot more people listening to all of our podcasts. Uh, uh, but the truth is that those are pretty rare. They're, they are diamonds in the rough sometimes, Jack and Justin and everybody listening. And so, yeah, I think what, what the rule breaker strategy has enabled me to do is to find them constantly shopify find them and buy them and i don't mind if the other 16 out of my 20 just kind of get run roughshod over by the best stock of its generation i'm totally open to that although you have to watch your allocations depending on your risk tolerance etc so so again i do think anytime you take a stable study and then you play it forward over years and years you're going to discover that it's not going to be all 20 stocks that equally 
win the race together. It's going to be Secretariat that just blows the field away, I think, time and time again. Just a prediction not coming from any database research of my own. You reference 10x and 100x type returns, and you know I would think your second criteria is one that you probably see in almost all the stocks that produce those kind of returns, and that's the idea of sustainable competitive advantage. Can you talk about how you look for that? Yeah, I mean, sustainable competitive advantage for me takes many forms, and some of them are kind of, again, more right-brained, more think-different thinking. Like, I will say the most sustainable competitive advantage that Amazon has had, in my opinion, and it has many, is Jeff Bezos. Amazon had Jeff Bezos, you didn't, whoever was competing against Amazon. And to me, when you have a founder in that case with a lot of stock, uh, with his his whole reputation and future tied up in a company for a few decades, even though Jeff has recently retired, uh, that is an incredibly powerful, sustainable, competitive advantage. And it's not there, uh, it's not there in the spreadsheet. It's not measured in financial statements. It's not possible to drive algorithms unless you want to create right-brained proxies, which I think is kind of cool for people who want to do that. But you really just can't see that in the financial statements or screen for it. And so I think it's often the things the screens don't see that give individual investors like me, armchair, that's all I am. I'm an armchair investor who give us an advantage, an opportunity. It's looking for the things that aren't being scored. Another example to me would be the culture of a company. I think that makes a huge difference. I know as an entrepreneur how important the Motley Fool culture is to us at The Fool. Uh, do a lot of Wall Street guys even think about that, or do traders care one jot? I, I would say no in most cases. Not everybody, but most cases, no, they don't care. But what persists over time? Culture. What is really driving the innovation? What is driving products? What is driving marketing? Culture. Uh, what do you hire for? Culture. So these things really matter, and these are sustainable competitive advantages. Now, if you're looking for a number to check a box, you can still find it. I mean, I would say another form of sustainable competitive advantage would be high margins. Uh, and that might be one of the screen attributes that you've been using for a Motley Fool screen over the years. I don't, I don't know, but I'll say this. Higher margins usually have told me a lot about who's winning and who's likely to win out there. If, if you can make 10 cents on the dollar for every sales and I'm competing against you, and I'm making two cents on the dollar. I was raised in an environment where people thought you're going to win. The two cents on the dollar guy is going to win because he's totally undercutting. Like he, he's just running a leaner operation and he's only making two pennies on the dollar. But it's a competitive world out there. If you're in the same industry I am and you are raking in 10% net profit margins, you have a lot more money to reinvest and to grow. You probably have more R&D money. And that you are making 10 cents profit on the dollar tells us, tells me anyway, that you're doing something special. And often, guys, that's tied up in brand as well. Like we pay up for brands. I do it every day. Sometimes unthinkingly we pay. So these are all sustainable competitive advantages. I apologize if I went on too long on number two. I won't go on as long as some of the others. But these first two really are about the businesses themselves, not about the stocks. You're looking for the best businesses of your time. And the last thing I'll say about number two, that phrase, that word sustainable, right? Because Jack and Justin, we are buying stocks for years, not for a trade, not for months. So you bet sustainable competitive advantage needs to be sustainable. You you can't have you can't say they have a great new product because if, if they have to replace that product a year later with a new model or something, that's not necessarily sustainable. So you have to look for things that sustain. 
For the next two, I'll group two together because they both fall into the category of things Jack is terrible at as an investor. Um, and you know that would be strong buying stocks that have strong price appreciation and also buying stocks that people call out as overvalued because I'm one of the ones calling them out as overvalued. So can, can you talk about those two things and why they're important? I can, and, and I'm not going to drag this answer out because I do want to move faster, but I do want to point out, Jack, that the, the, the second one you mentioned there is actually number six on the list, which is kind of the grand finale. So I'm going to park that and just briefly speak to number three, which, as you mentioned, is excellent past price appreciation. Now, for a lot of people, it's very hard for them to buy stocks at 52-week highs. They want to buy stocks at 52-week lows. And sometimes people are like, I'm waiting for the dip. I'm not going to buy till I see a dip. And as I've often said in the past, dips wait for dips. And, you know, these are all fun. I'm having fun with that. But, but quite seriously, I learned from William O'Neill, who wrote the wonderful book and the horrible book, How to Make Money on Stocks, the founder of Investor's Business Daily. I know you guys know Investor's Business Daily, so many of your listeners and your fans are going to kind of love some of the innovations, I do, that Investor's Business Daily and William O'Neill have brought to investors in the world. They're very quant-focused. They have things like their momentum numbers, their quality earnings numbers. They're, they're putting numbers on lots of stuff, which I think is pretty cool and drives a lot of screens. William O'Neill basically studied over the course of a few decades what stocks crushed it and why, and he ended up realizing and he wrote about it in his book, that it's actually the winners that keep on winning. And we know that in life. People say that in sports all the time. What do winners do? Tom Brady, they win. And I think we've seen examples of that time and time again, not just in sports or in investing, but I would say life. Often, whoever was supposed to be the most successful coming out of high school, whoever got voted by their class most likely to succeed, they often do. They might not be the most, but they often do succeed. So I I truly believe in positive momentum and positivity, and I think it's very important to recognize. And so when I see a stock that's doing great, I think a lot of people, Jack, I'm not going to tar and feather you. You can, you can do it to yourself <laughs> you can if, if you want. want. Here. I, no, I don't <laughs> want to at all. I, I, I love the humility from which your questions spring. I really do, and I try to do the same thing myself. But I want to say that um, what I've discovered is that typically the winners keep on winning, and when was a great time to buy Amazon? Well, 1997, when I bought it. 2002, 2007 was also a good year to buy Amazon. 2012, 17, I'm going to say 2022, Amazon's a good buy today. There are real reasons why these things are true, why success continues, why winners keep winning. And so recognizing that in a world where everybody else seems to be trying to buy low and sell high, I've always said my mantra is buy high and try not to sell. Buy quality, pay up doesn't feel great, guys, when the market sells off as it has in recent weeks, when some of the stocks have run up to ratios that were um, really historically high in terms of multiples, price to sales, etc. I mean, we're not going to look great during those months of sell-offs, but for the most part, the premium-priced, um, uh, premium multiple stocks like Starbucks, just a coffee company, why would you ever pay up so much for Starbucks, and yet has there been a better stock than Starbucks in its category for the last 30 years? So these are important things to hold in your heads. That's why, yeah, I like to find stocks that are going up, not going down. The fourth one is, is one that probably is the hardest one for quants to ever quantify, which is this idea of good management and smart backing. Um, why is that important? Yeah, I mean, it's the people that run companies. And again, as an entrepreneur myself, and I know you guys are entrepreneurs, I mean, I think you see this. Um, one of the misgivings I sometimes have about investment managers who are not entrepreneurs is that it's a mathematical exercise for them 
or maybe they're a broker and they're better at sales than actually picking stocks, which was certainly true in an earlier era of a lot of brokers. Not every broker, but often you were being trained to sell, not to analyze or to win. Uh, and so from my standpoint, it's about the people because I know what that's like at our company and as an entrepreneur and, and now as a venture capitalist because The Motley Fool is a venture fund that we're excited about. We've been doing it for the last few years. It's all about looking somebody who's probably young, younger than you are, whoever you are. You're looking that person in the eye and deciding, you know what? I'm going to back her. I actually think she's got the right idea here. And, you know, I might see flaws or it, it's just a tiny little it, – it's an acorn, not an oak with that VC mentality, but it's about the person that you're investing in. And so I, I think that's just as true of public companies today as well. They're at a different scale. But to me, it's about them and, of course, who is investing in them as well. The pedigree of your venture capitalists, I think, should matter. So, yeah, that's attribute number four of rule breaker stocks. And the fifth one plays into something you talked a little bit that you talked about before, the idea of brand. But the, the fifth one is the concept of strong consumer appeal. Yeah, and, and it is brand, another way of just saying it in one word. But I um, you know, there are B2B businesses that we can all respect. And I think about Amazing Stocks, another wonderful long-term pick of mine that we've just been sitting on for 15 years is NVIDIA. NVIDIA has been a spectacular performer, especially in recent years. But you had to go through a lot to get the returns that you've enjoyed in the last few years as an NVIDIA shareholder. But that's, that's a company that mainly works with other companies. I mean, it does kind of have a consumer-facing brand in some contexts. But what I'm trying to say here is there are lots of great companies that don't have great brands. But if a brand is a promise that you make and put yourself out there every day, if a brand is a reason you buy from me, not them, then I think that's a critical part of identifying winning companies, which is what the rule breaker attributes that we're talking through right now, Jack, which is what they're going to help you do. And so to me, strong appeal is important. Consumers just mean the buyer. So if you're a B2B buyer, you're still a consumer and you're choosing that partner, that cloud service, not that other one in order to do business. But really the most powerful companies are the ones that drill all the way out to the consumer, to the wide global 7 billion of us who are purchasers. And that's why companies like Netflix are so appealing to me because we're all watching Disney. We're all seeing front and center we can analyze and see what they're doing and make judgments about Disneyland and, and start to draw conclusions and feel like we have a handle on what's happening with that stock. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of strong consumer appeal. I also just want to add in, in closing on this one that it's not easy to create a great brand. I mean, again, if it were, everybody would have an amazing brand. Comcast does not have a great brand. Comcast does a lot of things that annoy people, and that's just sort of a whipping boy that's unfair and somewhat unfair to Comcast. But they're sort of a poster child for brands that even their own employees don't really take pride in or, or want to work for. I know how important it is to take pride in, as an employee, want to work for a cause greater than yourself, something where other people admire your name, Nike, and your background, and they want to be part of your ecosystem. I know the important dynamic of that. And again, we're investing for the only time that counts, the term that counts. That's the long term. We're investing. So strong consumer appeal is big. And the, and the last one, which you talked about, and I love the last one because it's the opposite. I love criteria that's the opposite of what most people do. And this is definitely the opposite of most people. what most people do, which is people call the stock out as overvalued. Well, and you know, you're having me on this week, so you're having a rule breaker. And by the way, there are a lot of rule makers and rule followers that create a lot of success in this world. So I'm not here to make it sound like think different is the only way to think. There are a lot of other companies besides Apple, and yet Apple has distinguished itself as special 
and it has added a lot of value to the world. And by the way, it's been one heck of a great stock pick of ours that we've been riding for uh, 15 years plus. So um, I'm a big Apple fan, of course. But yeah, I think to summarize then, if you can find a top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry that has a sustainable competitive, competitive advantage, it's got excellent past price appreciation, good management, smart backing, it's got strong consumer appeal, and somebody in Barron's or on CNBC or your friend at the water cooler who calls himself a value investor, or if, if everyone's calling that overvalued, that creates a wonderful positive dynamic for appreciation over the years. And that, that drives a lot of the returns that, that I have. And it took me a while as a young man to realize this. Having signed off of Rukeyser and started our own thing, I started to realize, like, why, why did AOL become such an amazing stock? And the answer is because it had those first five attributes in place and everybody called it overvalued. In fact, there was a worldwide economic forum where they would pull the people who attended each year and say, what's the most overvalued stock on the market? And I think, go back, check it, the years 1995 and 96, I think AOL was called out as the most overvalued stock. It would go on from that point up 150 times in value. And I was watching that front stage center, and I could not fail to learn the lesson, which is what I've been trying to teach ever since, which is that when you have all these positive dynamics in place and people think it's overvalued, they're not going to buy the stock. But as it proves itself out over time, those skeptics all of a sudden become customers. And some of those customers become shareholders. And that's what drives great stocks up a wall of worry. When you can see through the dark clouds that other people are worried about, you're often going to have your best investments. Do you always require all six criteria? Or are there certain instances where some of the criteria are so strong that you might overlook one or two of the other ones? The latter. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it's a framework like anything. It has exceptions, and not everything has to be present. But when I can find them all or a lot of them in place, that's that. That might be my next stock. I want to ask you about selling, uh, and you know, this is we're going to get into another term you don't like here, which is this idea of a sell discipline. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess b before I ask you about selling in general, just can you explain why you don't like this idea of a sell discipline? Yeah, well, I just think it's a funny phrase because I've never ever heard anybody say buy discipline. And really, if if we're going to be um, Thinking about what wins in life, I think a buy discipline is much more important than a sell discipline. And yet all of the phrase, uh, it, all of the disciplines loaded into the sell consideration, it seems like. And you're asked, you know, as a challenging question, often I, I hear this from institutional money managers. Like their, their clients come in, they meet with them once a year and like, what's your sell discipline? And it just sounds so impressive that you have a discipline around sell or that selling would be such a disciplined activity. So of course, I'm having fun with that because I'm a rule breaker, and I try to look at the other side of things. So I believe that you and I should have amazing buy discipline, and I think that's what we just talked through. We just talked through six attributes that help people listening make better buys. And the truth is, if you buy the kinds of companies we've been talking about, Mercado Libre has just been a remarkable rule breaker stock. I think it's up 80 times in value since I picked it in 2009. I mean, that is what's really important is to buy the right stuff. And then when you sell, doesn't really matter so much. And, and to think that you're being very disciplined around your sell, usually that implies to me people who sell too early or too frequently. They're building up discipline and talking about it with the world, and they're probably selling more than they should. How many people bought Tesla at some point and then decided to hop off the wagon and miss the 147 times the value that it's gone up for Rule Breaker members since November of 2011? 
I would say a lot. I would say the vast majority of people who ever own ticker symbol TSLA don't still probably hold it. Um, and you know, I'm not I'm not trying to sound like we're always right because I I hope we'll get into all the times that I'm wrong and I've already been foreshadowing that. But I picked more bad stocks than anyone else in Motley Fool history, so we have to talk about both of those things. But anyway, that's why Jack I like to make jokes about. What's your sell discipline? And I, and I know your sell discipline in general is just not to sell. But when, when you do, in, in those rare occasions where you do have to sell, how do you think about that decision? Do you go back to these original criteria and say, are these still present? You know, I think that the, what causes, when I have to sell, usually it's because I want to do something with the money. Like that's, that's a reason. Like why do we invest in the first place? Maybe for a vacation home, maybe for, to retire early, maybe for, maybe for a child's education. I mean, those are the reasons that I sell. So they're actually life-driven decisions that force my hand into selling, but then I don't feel too bad about it because that's why I invested in the first place. It wasn't all just an academic exercise. So that's why I sell. And what do I sell when I need to sell? Well, I'll usually look at things and say, you know, am I over-allocated anywhere? Has one of these amazing stocks, I mean, again, if you're going to buy a stock, I don't know, like let's go with Shopify, which is up 46 times in value for us just the last six years. If you're going to sell, you know, maybe you're overweight at this point in Shopify. And and by the way, you don't have to wait for a life-driven decision to reallocate if you're over-allocated into any winning stock. I'd be the first to say, and I've called it my sleep number, and we can talk about that or not, this interview, but I think everybody should be able to sleep at night when they look at their portfolio. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. So if you're over-allocated because a monster winner uh, NetEase has been a spectacular performer for us. It's up 45 times in value for Rule Breakers since 2004. It's it's a lesser-known company, although at this point it's kind of a Chinese behemoth at $66 billion market cap. But NetEase, you know, if you are if you have too much NetEase, I'd be the first to say sell. So I think that, you know, why do you sell? I think we've gone through a decision tree of two main reasons. A, life-driven decision, why we invest in the first place. B, you know, I don't have the right allocation. Maybe I have too much of it. Uh, and, and so, but then what to sell, I think you have to start, if it's, if it's the, if it's the latter, you already know what to sell, the thing you're over allocated in. If it's that first thing, you know what? I'm going to retire early. This is why I invested. I need to sell. What am I going to sell? I would probably start asking myself some combination of which are the companies that 10 years from today, you're most confident are going to be thriving. And I'm not talking about as stocks. I'm talking about as businesses, as world shapers. And I would hold on to those, which are the ones that seem less so. Like you might have an amazing oil company that's paying a ha handsome dividend, but are you that confident that 10 years from today that oil company is going to be so big and thriving? Uh, I would be less confident. So I would, I would start looking at the businesses themselves, Jack, and I'd say, you know, what, do I, what am I most confident in uh, is going to be thriving? And I'm holding those and selling off the other stuff if and when I need to. Just uh, one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I know you've recently stepped away from taking the lead in the Rule Breaker portfolio, and people you've trained over the years are, are now doing it. And I'm just wondering, as, as part of that process of training people over the years, how much do you think of being a great investor who can find these types of stocks, how much of that do you think can be taught, and how much of that do you think is intrinsic inside of a person that they need in order to be able to do it? You know, we, we could say that about so many different callings in life, and, and I can easily see the 100-0 or 0-100 answer in either case, because sometimes that's true, that sometimes anything can be taught, really, if, if you have a willing learner. 
And I think there are demonstrations of that. I, I believe in my fellow humans. I believe you can learn any – you could do anything that you want to. You could be a free a, a, a free climber. You could be up El Capitan if you really purpose yourself, whoever's listening to me right now, if you really want to do that. So that's my own mentality. But I also do think that some of us have special attributes or visions or DNA in some cases that make it so that, no, I can't actually be Michael Jordan. Turns out I just I, – I can't. I'm not six foot eight. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will not be a great basketball player. There are reasons of DNA why that or, – or I shouldn't try to be great at that, right? Maybe I could be a, a really good one, but maybe I could have spent my energy better not trying to get really good at basketball when I couldn't be great. So I think the answer is that my, my, profoundly I believe because I've seen it. So many people have learned how to invest better over the course of our 28 years. And that's the Motley Fool's greatest legacy, I think. And it's hard to measure. Like some of the other things we're talking about in this podcast, it's hard to measure. But, you know, I get notes on a regular basis to my podcast, which I read out on my mailbag each month from people who thank us, who say they've totally changed how they think, and over the last 10 years they've prospered beyond their dreams, and thank they thank us for the next few generations of their family where they couldn't have ever dreamed of that. I can't put a number on what that means. It means something very deep psychically and psychologically to me. I think it drives a lot of us at the fool. But I, you know, So I know anyone can learn this, but I also think that some people are more willing to challenge received wisdom than others. And so some people are more capital F foolish than others. And I don't want to try to fit round pegs in square holes. So I, I encourage each person to be the best version of themselves. We're all unique. Figure out what your capabilities are. But to answer... In conclusion there, Jack, every one of us can become a great investor. I'm very persuaded by that. So, David, we now know that you have the uh, championship belt at the Motley Fool for total number of uh, underperforming picks. <laughs> um, but, the, but the winners are, like you said before, the, the winners are the big winners. And um, your, tr your track record certainly speaks for it. But, you know, just in terms of thinking about your mistake, mistakes that have been made and things that you've learned from? I mean, what are some of the biggest lessons that you think you've learned over your 20 plus career and looking at stocks and, and actively picking companies? Yeah, I would say, Justin, first of all, I mean, you can't do what we do at The Fool and not be constantly humbled, constantly humbled. So, and I, I like that discipline um, because if you're going to be picking, in my case, rule breaker stocks, you're not going to, no venture capitalist is right 20 times out of 20. And I sure am not right with my stock picks 20 times out of 20. Just for mathematical sake, I'll say I try to be right 60% of the time. That's my aspiration. And when I say right, that means we're beating the stock market. So all those quants out there uh, and all the people listening to you who, who know what you guys do, I'm always saying you win when you beat the market averages, not that you made money. Because I think all of us can already get the S&P 500 index fund return. And so if we're going to spend time picking stocks, however we're doing that, we should be trying to beat that because otherwise you're wasting your time. You could have just gotten that anyway and moved on with your life. I love the game of investing. I love trying to take different approaches and win games. And I have a lot of board games in the room that I'm speaking to you guys from. So I'm a gamer, capital G. Um, but I know as a gamer and as a sports fan, I mean, I know how often we lose. And you have to be able to be okay with that. Part of that is that you make sure you spread your bets. You diversify. As I've often said, fair starting line. If you give me uh, $25,000 to invest, I'm going to put $1,000 in 25 different stocks. And I'm not going to have a big ego that I think I know that it's stock number 17. 
and I should put 5000 in that one and short shrift four others in my group of 25. Nope, I'm going to put 1000 in each of those 25 because I know the winners are going to win. I got Secretariat somewhere in there because we already covered the six attributes that are going to help you find the best stocks of every generation. I believe it's timeless what we talked through there. I think it's going to keep winning just as it did last generation. It's going to win the next generation. So I know we got the winners, but I'm not going to, A, know what they are ahead of time because we need to let the future happen. And then, B, to your point, Justin, I need to be okay that some of these horses, as soon as the gate opened, they fell over, tripped, and died or got this is going to be Grizzly shot right after the race because they broke their leg. We shouldn't treat horse races, horses that way. But the truth is that there are a lot of underperformers out there, and I, my portfolio and my record is full of them. And so anybody who joins Motley Fool Stock Advisor or Motley Fool Rule Breakers definitely needs to know that they're going to be exposed to stocks that can lose up to 90% of their value. One of my favorite um, stats and these change every day, so I'm fudging the numbers, and I know you guys are numbers guys, so I apologize I'm fudging the numbers, but spiritually you'll recognize this is true. Over the course of Motley Fool Rule Breakers history, I had out of 360-ish stock picks, so two picks made every single month for decades. I had around 360 picks. Around 60 of them were down 50% or more, not to the market, flat out their return, cut in half. One in six of my picks that you were paying me for, that you subscribed to the service and told your friends and family about, one in six of my picks literally lost 50% at a minimum. And that is horrific. Every single one of those 60 stocks, at the time I picked, I was like, this is, this is my best idea right now. Let's go with this. I don't know which one's going to win, but let's try this one. And so, you know, scary. For a lot of people who are more conservative or just don't have as high a risk tolerance, and mine is very high, for a lot of people, they live in fear of any stock ever getting cut in half. And we have new members who join our services, and we try to set their mindset. Morgan Housel has helped us with this over the years. My brother Tom Gardner is a genius at this. A lot of others at The Fool were all about your mindset. But a lot of new members call us if their first stock's down 10%, and they're calling our member services team saying, I don't know what to do. Should I sell? I'm down. So, I, I mean, I'm always hanging out with the hoi polloi. I am mixing with all of us. I'm not an institutional Wall Street Ivory Tower person, I'm right in there in the muck with you in my weekly podcast as well and with you guys. And so I know the mentality, and it's a lot It's a lot of different mentalities out there for lots of people. So, again, going back to it, horrific that one in six of my stocks lost 50% of its value. But here's the good news. The 60th best performer out of those 360, uh, when I finished, had a return of something like 343%, and it was like Zillow. This is when I stepped away about a year ago. So the numbers will have changed, but it'll all still, the truths are true. So think about that. The 60th best pick is up 343%. By the way, those horrific losers, none of them was down 100%. You can't lose more than 100% unless you're doing something silly, which I never do. And so the best pick overall, Tesla up 147 times in value for rule breakers. That stock on its own literally wipes out all 60 of those 60 stocks losses and leaves money on the table. In other words, I do not fear loss. And I believe that I'm surrounded by many fellow humans who do fear loss. And I understand in their contexts why that might be true and right for them. I'm not saying everybody should throw caution to the winds and join rule breakers. I know that some people do not have the right mentality or just wouldn't enjoy it even if they did well at it. But I love it. 
And I've seen the math of it, and actually I've proven the math of it because I did it for 28 years right in front of anybody who wanted to come to Keyword Fool on AOL back in the day from that first question you asked me, Justin, about Rukeyser early days, right, right through to today. Anybody can see, if you join our services, you see the full record, all my winners here in this case, and all my losers. We don't shy away from either. But the profound learning is that your winners can go up infinite and your losers can only lose 100%. And the math, if you take our approach, is wildly in your favor. Like mortgage the house and bet everything if you're playing it for the long term, it's wildly in your favor. It's also, speaking back to a, an earlier thread we had, it's also why you're always going to have a minority of your stocks that drive your returns because you're going to end up with those monster winners that do that to you. What I sort of love about this conversation is you've, you know, we started with the framework and you're clearly um, very passionate and you follow that framework to find these great companies. But then there's this honesty and transparency that I think it's very important to give investors to help them understand the realities and the risk of investing. Um, the statistics, like you said, they're not all going to be winning stocks. I mean, no investment strategy always picks winning stocks. If you've ever think you have found that or somebody's promoting that to, to you, you probably want to run away as quickly as possible. But I think having a, uh, allowing investors to stick with an investment strategy is very important because there's going to be times when it's not working, when it's struggling, but if it's a good strategy grounded in good fundamental um, sort of research and finding great companies, then, you know, inevitably it, it tends to come back and work. And, and so, I don't know, I think everything that you're talking about here can kind of go to those to those points, which is you know a philosophy, a process, understanding a strategy doesn't always work, and that actually helps educate investors, your subscribers, to get the most out of what you've created there. Thank you, Justin. You know, I think a lot of what I'm doing, and there's some overlap with what you guys are doing. There might also be some contrast. You you can tell me, but I think what I'm doing ultimately is I want to make sure I don't fall in love too much with my criteria or any given basket of stocks or even my own methodologies, which I bet will continue to revise over the course of time. I will continue to learn more and change things up. So I think, you know, I, what, what I'm here to promote most of all is looking at the world around you and making sure that you're investing in a way that is true to you. A, a worry that I have for some people who would follow a screen is that they're following the screen. And if they have the wrong attribute or the wrong algorithm somewhere within their screen, they'll end up being steered badly. Um, but the sad thing is that they didn't need to if they'd opened their eyes and looked at the world around them. And that's my way of saying that ultimately what we're doing at The Fools, we're connecting you with the actual companies that you're buying. Like it's not a ticker, it's not a trade, it's the opposite. It's actually it, it's it's the effect you're having on the world because when you put your dollars toward a company, when you buy something like Disney, you're helping Disney. In a tiny way, you're helping Disney, but it's all real. When you buy from Apple, you're actually pumping up Apple's income statement, its statement of cash flows, and ultimately its balance sheet, which allows it to do a secondary offering and raise more money. Right? We are all co-creating the future together. And so that's why I would be pulling my head out of spreadsheets occasionally if anybody's too deep there and make sure you're looking at the world around you saying, who are the people who impress me? What are the companies that I think have great products and services that truly help the world? And what, what future do I want to live in? And I think whether or not I have this on my gravestone, it'll be 
at least from my gravestone, worthy, my line, which is make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. And I truly believe, like, if I were forced to a screen, if I could only screen for one thing, that's what I'd be doing. And that's what I, that's the lens I'm trying to give everybody else who's listening to me to wear on their nose as well, is to make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. Not mine, right? You see different parts of that elephant than I do. You might see some better parts than I do. But make sure it's what you see. And I really think that you're going to do great as an investor if you're following the principles we're talking about. And you are realizing it's all connected to a real world around us, not a metaverse, not a stock averse, not some um, crazy um, investment universe. It's the real world that we're living in. And it turns out the same things that work in sports or in life also work in business. And so find the great stuff and just hold it. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Jack, you're listening to this, yeah. right? <laughs> I got to work on it still. <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably need to yeah, exactly. uh, come on a private lesson after this, maybe, <laughs> in, in terms of how to do that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> So two, uh, really three, three more questions, uh, David. You've been so generous with your time. We're sort of over 60 minutes here. Hopefully that's okay for you. But uh, It's fine with me. Cut me off at any time. I'm, I think I'm having too much fun because you, your questions are so thoughtful, guys. And I just really appreciate the time that you've put in to think things through. And you obviously did some research on me, know some of my lines and hang-ups, and that makes me even happier. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. you we had talked about in the Rule Breaker portfolio the importance of um, being in on these emerging industries. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts, if you guys have thought at all about crypto, the blockchain, and where that is or where the opportunity might be for investors or what the risk might be for investors or how are you at all looking at this new emerging technology and just what your thoughts are in general. Thank you very much, Justin. Yeah, I, short answer for me on this one. Um, I think it matters. I think it's worth paying attention to. But part of the reason that a year ago I stepped away from stock picking, uh, the thing I'd been doing the 28 years before that, is because I don't actually want to have to know everything about the future. I was finding it a little exhausting to try to piece together because that's ultimately what I was doing um, for a few decades is I was thinking about the future and just trying to get to know as much as I could about planet Earth and all of its Earthlings and then just try to figure out playing it forward since we're going to be invested for a few decades here. What do I think is more likely to win than not? And what technologies are going to come around and disrupt others streaming media? Sorry, Blockbuster. Right, Looking at things finding the rule breakers, and it is an engrossing act. And not everybody has to do it because I was doing it for you with each of my stock picks that I made each week. But I found it near the end in my mid-50s. I'm not going to say exhausting because I actually loved it, but I just decided I don't want to focus so much of my time and my mentality on having to figure out, in this case, to answer your question, crypto. I'm, I'm just, I, I, I can totally see how it's amazing, and I can totally see how it's all hype. And somewhere in the middle, the truth lies right there. I, I, in general, don't find myself particularly interested in crypto, cryptocurrencies, or NFTs. Um, part of me thinks I might sound like an old man that I'm saying that. Uh, and I'm always like celebrating youth and the, the dreamers and the innovators. So I'm not comfortable ever sounding like Warren Buffett because I just imagine him as just an older man who doesn't have much interest in technology of the future. And that's not me. I'm actually the opposite of that, I hope. With that said, though, a lot of it isn't real or that necessary. Some of it is. Blockchain um, technology, transparency, uh, new, new potential currencies, I think they're really fascinating. 
and there's so much in there, I think, that is not of much value. And a concern that I have is that I think a lot of people, they don't even buy stocks. Um, maybe I'm speaking to college students right now. They're just buying cryptos and trading them back and forth with each other. And, and I, 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 what, what I said a little while ago about the importance of the real world that we're living in, real world solutions and things that help humanity, I have lots of questions around that, around NFTs. Uh, as an example. Um, and so I think a lot of it is overblown. I think we'll look back and say um, there was a lot of investing, I, I'm going to call it trading here, going on where people had this mentality, and I always think this is a mistake, that I'm going to buy it because I believe I can sell to someone else for more soon. And anytime that that mentality is, is in someone's mind, I think they should get it out and they should think better. If it becomes a collective mentality shared by millions of people, that's what leads to some of the bigger financial problems or scandals that we've had over the course of time. Uh, I, I'm not calling it out as a big problem right now, but it, check yourself and check those around you. If you believe that a mentality of, I'm buying it now because I think I can sell it to somebody more soon for something more, uh, then that's a real problem. I do think that, that there's a fair amount of that endemic in the crypto world. All that said, Aaron Bush, who's one of my favorite investors at The Motley Fool, uh, he is about half my age. Uh, he and I just did a, a podcast on NFTs called NFTs 2022. And Aaron and I did that um, uh, in the last month. We did a Bitcoin 2021 episode last year. I try to not make things very topical and timely. I try to be timeless. So I hope both of those conversations, if people are interested in Bitcoin from last year or NFTs this year, I think think that we have some good thinking for you and it's not that we're talking it down. Aaron is a big fan of lots of areas of, um, uh, of value that are being created through cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And, I, and I'm a fan that Aaron is a fan of that. It's just not my personal focus and none of my dollars have been invested in there or probably will be for a while. Yeah, no, that makes sense. We'll put links to those um, shows actually in our show notes so people can check those out if they want to. Um, Speaking of humanity and investing in things that are real and things that you believe in, what a lot of people listening to this may not know is Motley Fool actually has, and you've hit on this a couple times, you have a uh, venture fund that backs early stage companies um, in various um, businesses and industries. And I think one of the common threads in your investments is trying to uh, invest in companies that are sort of change or doing some type of good for society or changing something that might be good for humanity. So I just, I don't know, I thought maybe as we wrap it up here, if you could uh, talk a little bit about Motley Fool Ventures and then also what, and you don't have to talk about specific investments or portfolio companies, um, but what areas are you excited about or are the principals at the firm excited about when they're looking at allocating money to these early stage companies? Thank you, Justin. Well, the reason we entered venture capital is because enough of our members, our customers, started saying, hey, guys, beyond just stocks, you know, I trust you guys, and I own some of the stocks Dave and Tom have talked about, but what about venture capital? What about getting an earlier stage? What if you could buy a rule breaker like Tesla before it's a ticker symbol on a public exchange? And so that forced us, uh, and, you know, it's not like you had to force us. We're fans of this, but it it really had us start thinking, you know, we should find earlier stage stuff for our members. And indeed, Olin Douglas, who is uh, helping, who's overseeing Motley Fool Ventures, uh, went on a 
vision quest and just thought about, you know, what do our members want? What are we looking for? Olin concluded that, you know, helping our members into what's really worked for us, technology, asking what are the new technologies that are coming that will replace the older ones. Uh, that's the big thing that we do at Motley Fool Ventures. I will also mention a phrase we haven't used, and this is unusual for me after more than an hour, conscious capitalism, which we really won't talk to too much right now. But I'm on the board of the national organization Conscious Capitalism, and we believe the business is good. It's not bad. It's not something to be cynical about or think it's all run by, you know, the people who get the bad headlines, which tend to drive headlines often, the wolves of Wall Street in the world. I think that some of the most amazing leaders that we have in our world today are leading businesses, not countries. And I know these people, and I, I've learned so much, and I'm so grateful for them. So, and, and I know business can be done badly, and I know capitalism can have as, its excesses, and I'm totally not a fan of allowing those to win, but I also know the wonderful companies that have uplifted all of us. Think about during a pandemic, we're still talking during a pandemic, miraculous vaccines were, were, were deployed, not just dreamed up, but deployed within the context of two years of the pandemic. It didn't come to you from your local government. It came to you from the private sector. It came to you from R&D dollars that are spent with guts and blood and love every day by companies, scientists who are trying to solve problems. And that's true of every disease every day, but I'm especially thinking of the pandemic. And, I mean, how many, how many Chick-fil-A people have made you smile if you're a Chick-fil-A fan as you did the drive-thru with all the rest of us just trying to get a meal here in the last couple of years during dark times? So I love business when it's done right. I know businesses can be done right. That's where my investment dollars are. And so Conscious Capitalism does, Justin, run through what we do with The Fool and Motley Fool Ventures as well. I'll give you a quick example um, first of all, I'm not here to promote Motley Fool Ventures because it's a closed fund. We're just, you know, this is a fund that we raised $150 million from our members a few years ago. It's being invested by a team that's not connected to me, but I love what they're doing. But Isuzu, not Joe Isuzu, that's, that's the car company and the fun ads of 20 years ago for those as old as I am. But no, ESUSU has been a breakout investment for us and is going to cause Motley Fool Ventures members to beat the market and be very happy. And this is a company that basically, first of all, uh, an African-American gentleman, so African-American-led business. Not a lot of those get funding at high levels traditionally so far. The world is changing. Good news. But that's true of Asusu. But most of all, what they do is they help people build a credit uh, history and build their credit through something that everybody pays all the time, a lot of us, and yet was never part of credit reporting, and that's the rental payments that you make to Mr. Landlord. And that is a game changer for all of our fellow Americans who are looking to build credit and have a credit history. And now, thanks to Isusu, which is now a unicorn that we invested in at an early stage, you can now have, as an immigrant maybe, or somebody new to the system, you can have credit history too, thanks to the rental payments you're making. And that's Isusu. So yeah, is that a company that I think makes the world better? You betcha. And is that a company that's for-profit that we're invested in as part owners for Motley Fool Ventures? You betcha. So that's kind of an example, Justin. That's actually our best example so far. That's our best investment. But that, like a lot of the other things we've talked about this podcast, that represents uh, a winner that's going to keep on winning, and it's going to outsize our losers, which are in there in our fund as well, just like any portfolio. So the same dynamics that happen for us as public market investors, 
Well, they're true of, for private markets as well. And I think that's what we're discovering at Motley Fool Ventures, that this fool thing that we do, where we challenge conventional wisdom and try to think different and think about the health of the world and a better future, which I think we're living into, and I say that with great confidence, that you can be a part owner of that through the stock market and through venture capital investments. Just in closing, our standard question, um, and I'm excited to hear how you answer this, is based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Uh, I would say try never to sell. Um, you know, we had a lot of fun with sell discipline earlier. I think too much is made of it. Um, I think I think you have to think about selling a lot if you're not buying good stuff in the first place. Like maybe you were buying it for a trade. You thought maybe we're in a cycle and you'll sell at the end of the cycle. You're trying to time the market. And so, so many reasons that people sell are because the thing they bought in the first place, they didn't buy something excellent where they didn't buy something that would persist. But those are the two things that I'm always trying to do, is I'm trying to buy things that are excellent as early as possible, and I'm going to let that persist for better and for worse. And so I really don't have to think about selling too much. So the less you think about selling, the more you're thinking about the quality of what you're buying. Buffett has a great line. I'm paraphrasing here. Something like, imagine if you had a ticket you could only punch 20 times in your life, and they're the 20 buys you can make, and you can never sell. And if you take something like that as your mentality, I believe that you will do better with all of your investing than if you didn't. So I love the wisdom of don't sell, try never to sell. That's been what I've demonstrated. Like all of the stocks that I'm hyping myself up with because I picked Amazon at $3.21 in 1997, these stocks, we still hold these stocks. And that's, that's such an important lesson. Maybe the most, I, the reason I ended with it is because that's the most important lesson I can think of for your listeners. David, so much to unpack in here. Um, so much wisdom. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing all this knowledge with us and having some fun along the way. So we really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Jack. Your questions, again, were so thoughtful. Appreciate your work. And I'm just delighted to be joining in with you. I'd be happy to come back sometime if you want to have me. Fool on. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.